Welcome back, Rebels. It's dangerous to go alone. Take this. Is this David or Navi that I'm speaking to? Yeah, I've quoted a little bit of uh, Zelda there for you because we're going a little bit video game heavy. Um, but we we just got into an accidental conversation about video games and how relevant there is so many learnings that we have had from video games that have affected us in life and business. I think like a video game is such a great metaphor for life when you think about like an adventure game. Like Zelda is a perfect example and like Pokemon we quite often reference as well, like not on this podcast, but when we talk about business and things. When you've got a game where you start from nothing and you by the end of the game, you're going to beat the final boss and you're going to win. I kind of feel like that's how a career goes. Like you start from literally not knowing anything, you've got crap tools, and then you kind of have to go on this adventure to get to the final boss and to actually beat the game. And Yeah, we all start with Deku Nuts and a twig, and then gradually things things work out, and then you have more tools in your arsenal, so you become more powerful, um, and you're, you're able to defeat more enemies um, or get more clients or make better work and i think the tools part of it is really interesting as well because like zelda for anyone who's played zelda ocarina of time or zelda all of the zeldas i suppose it's you all kind of start in a similar way um but yeah you start with a stick and i think that is a great metaphor for the tools that you need when you're first getting started because we put these ideas in our head of like i need to buy the best tools otherwise my artwork's going to be awful and i think if you think about a pencil as an example it's like they'll and i've i've been in that like i've literally got so many expensive mechanical pencils sat around me now i can count six easily so that means there's definitely more in this room from like artists that i've seen online i'm like oh my god well they're so good their art is amazing i need to buy the pencil that they've bought for me to be great but it's never the pencil it's never the tool it's it's the time and effort you put into actually getting better with that tool rather than spending all the money and thinking that that's going to be this like magic wand. I think why video games are, are so relevant is because if you design a video game, you are there's certain human traits that you are capitalising on. Um, people want to play a game that is challenging, but is also achievable. Um, and once mm-hmm. you understand that, that very sort of natural human behaviour, uh, as video developer, video game developers do, and they utilize that to sell millions of games. It's like, that's how the world works. As soon as you understand that, as soon as you realize that if I set myself challenges that are hard, but also achievable, that's how I'm going to find fulfillment in my life. It's just, it's, it's, it's what we're evolved to do. And I think the difficulty there is really interesting as well, because if you compare like something like Candy Crush, which is so easy and it's easy to beat a level and you can just go through it and it's mindless. I don't think anyone really reflects on like, oh, I love those days when I used to sit and play Candy Crush. Whereas I I like, I have vivid memories of like playing computer games that were challenging as kids. And then when you beat them and it was hard, that's like, you get so much reward from that. Like I remember there was a game called Ninja Gaiden that I used to have on the Xbox, which was the hardest fucking game I've ever played. Like I gave up. It was just, it was too hard. But the ratings on that game were like 95, like 95 out of 100, like some of the best ratings that an Xbox game ever got. And I think that was because if you went through it, actually got really, really good and beat it, you'd be like, this is the best game ever. It's so good. And I think that really reflects in life so much. It's like if you're going to put, if it's too easy, then you're probably not going to get the fulfillment out of it that you actually want. Whereas as soon as 
you have to go again and again and again trying and like like pokemon is i always think of pokemon because when i first played pokemon going through that game getting to a gym and so if anyone who hasn't played pokemon gyms were kind of like there's eight of them within the game you kind of have to beat each one to get to the next level but you'd go and try and like beat one of these gyms and you would fail so often and you'd have to come back out go and train some more like build up your pokemon and then come and try again and sometimes it would take like so many times going back and trying again and trying again and trying again but eventually you would do it and the reward from that would be feel so good but then it's like then you're on to the next gym and it's like and you would just keep going through the whole game kind of having these little bits of like this challenge that you need to overcome but to overcome that you need to go and like run through the long grass, like fight all the different other little Pokemon and build up your squad, which I suppose is your skill set as a, as a human in a creative world. It's like building up the talent as you're going is going to lead you in, like that's the only way you're going to be able to break through to the next level. Yeah, it's so funny when you and me met 11 years ago and started started our first business and we're like kind of going along and doing all these things and one of us turned to the other one and went, we were talking about business and went, well, it's just like Pokemon, really. And the other one instantly got it. And then trying to explain to Yona, who's not a video game player, why our business was like <laughs> why our very sensible grown-up business that had real clients that was working with some brand names of some of the biggest people in the world, trying to explain to our business partner why our business was like Pokemon. She was just like, you are a bunch of idiots. Um, but I think she does understand where we're coming from now. Like our the way our business was like Pokemon is that we were training it. We were feeding it the right um, candies. We were we were leveling it up. So as you go through the game, your Pokemon get more powerful and they 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 hop up levels. And that's what we were doing with the business. Every every kind of client, every experience, every 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 job that was teaching us new skills, like we were learning new moves. And it was so easy to draw parallels between what you and I as teenagers had, had experienced in that game to what we were going through in, mm. in real life of just this gradual leveling up of the business. Yeah. And it's like the failures that you go through and the wins and it's all of the different things. And I think as well, going back to the Pokemon metaphors, it's like there were certain points in our business where it did, did feel like we evolved. So again, if you haven't played Pokemon, your like po- your Pikachu, which everyone knows who Pikachu is, can evolve to a Raichu, which is like a bigger, different version of itself. And it's like that happens in business and there will be big changes. That will often be moving a premises or em- t- employing your first member of staff. It's like as soon as there's something that seems really big, then it's like then you can go on and challenge bigger newer things so i think that's what you kind of have to do with a business is keep it growing keep it evolving and constantly feeding it with the things that it needs to thrive yeah if you're still listening then uh, well done because we've literally lost half the audience there. <laughs> um, we are nerds and we're not scared to reveal that fact to you guys um video games have been important for both of us in our lives and and there's uh, I was feeling really shit the other week and I, I sat down and played Super Mario World and then I played a bit of Super Mario 64 and it was just a warm, nostalgic blanket. Um, I know those games so well. I know those levels. There's still, and, and again, there's still the hard challenges. It's like sliding down the the Mr. Penguin slide in Mario 64 is still bloody hard and I still fell off the edge yeah. a load of times. Yeah. And yeah, those challenges are, are what, what keep you coming back. But if you're not a gamer, this means nothing to you. But if you are a gamer you will be able to sort of see the human behavior stuff that the software developers are, are leveraging and then you can work out how to leverage it in in your own practice and i think it's in i, th- I think i mean in a strange way i think it does give you an advantage i think if you are 
if you are a gamer, is you can see these things and you can be like, yeah, I, I played, I've, I've played this because really all we're doing in life is playing a game. Like we are, we are working mm-hmm. against different systems and we're trying to achieve different things. It is, it's very, and everything, like everything around us is gamified. And, and I think for me, it's, it's the practice. Like that was the only thing I really practiced as a, as a kid was getting good at games. And I, I, now I know how important that practice is. And I can, I, I saw that, oh, when I started Mario 3, I sucked. And then my friend showed me a couple of bits and like, this is how you run fast. And this is how you do all of these things. And then after a while of keep doing it, I, I became better. And that's ingrained in me now of like practice gets you better at things. The practice never goes away as well. Like that becomes a skill that you then have that when it comes to you playing the next game, that's not Super Mario, it's another platforming game. You're then not awful at that when you first start because you've already developed a bit of experience from the previous mm. one. And it's like anyone who's ever played like a, a shooting game or anything. It's like by playing like one game, you kind of learn how to do it. And then the next game will come out and you're like, this is so different to the last one. But there's still elements here. And if you play against someone who's never played any of those tournament games before, you're going to win. And I think that's like business or like any form of kind of creative medium it's like when you move over to something new, like if I start doing like pottery now, which I've never done before, I've already got the idea of, well, this is how I would sculpt something based on the different skills that I've learned before. Like actually last week I downloaded um, an app on my iPad and that's like a 3D sculpting software. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a go. I've never watched a tutorial. I've never done anything. And I made a head on that. And I was like, this is actually really good. And I was like, I'm amazed at the fact that this is the first time I've ever used this software and I've gone and created something that is genuinely like good. Like if I think back to the first time I ever did anything in 3D, probably like 15 years ago, it was awful. It was so bad. Yet the first time I tried this piece of software, it went really well. And that only went well for the fact that I've spent the last like few years looking at faces and drawing faces and taking pictures of faces so often that I now know what a human head looks like from loads of different angles. I know kind of where the cheekbones cut in. I know exactly where the ears would start on your face compared to like the level of your eyes and things like that. And all those little things you might not think are significant actually all build to something that is a bit more of a unified thing that is talent, I suppose. It's like building up that talent over time that when something new comes up, you can take it straight into that. Like when a new social media platform comes up, you can take the skills you've learned from what you've done before, move them over to there and be more successful than you would have been if you hadn't built those skills in the first place. So I think no matter what it is, whether it's computer games, whether it's kind of artwork, whether it's a business that you started, it's like all of the things that you do in your life add together to make your overall talent arc, which is going to lead you into whatever you do next so much better than if you hadn't bothered to build all those skills before so yeah so build the skills and beat the bosses and you will be successful i think one of the interesting things that that happens in zelda is that you you aren't really able to skip ahead so as it's an open world and you can roam freely Mm -hmm. anywhere if you go into an area where you're not equipped to fully deal with the bad guys there you're going to get yourself in trouble and the lesson there is that there are no shortcuts like you don't get to jump straight to the mm-hmm. final boss and fight them. There are no cheat codes, and that's the same for your creative career. So hopefully we've not um, beaten these uh, video game analogies too much to death. Let's get into this week's episode with Frankie Ward. 
Yes, uh, Frankie Ward has a new podcast coming out soon. Uh, you can follow her social channels for details on that. And uh, and she is a presenter for eSports, which is what uh, prompted all of our video game talk at the beginning of this episode. Uh, and she's just an all-round general nice person. So we were very happy to chat with Frankie on this week's episode. Hi, Frankie. Hello. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm very good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for coming. Do you ever, like I do, look at your job and just go, what is this job? All the time. Yeah. I mean, I have to explain my job to people and that can be quite difficult sometimes because then you have to explain what esports is as well as what I do within it. (laughs) Normally I just sort of go, oh, I'm kind of Claire Balding, but with computer games. So that's sort of how I see myself in the mirror i thank my lucky stars i'm a second rate clairboarding in the digital world yeah so esports being competitive gaming people play against each other and you host and and interview and do various things i I suppose your your job is to kind of help the audience along the way in that journey i mean the same way a sports commentator does with with regular sports yeah exactly we sometimes call ourselves storytellers uh because the reason I wanted to do esports in the first place was to tell those stories of, of the players you're seeing. But yeah, they're in competitive environments like normal sports. It's just uh, it's on a computer or it's on a games console. And I specialize normally in, in first person shooter games. But to be honest, I've done so many different games now. I've kind of kind of lost track. Was there ever like a moment where before you were presenting where you were just like, this is something that I need to be a part of? Yeah, absolutely. I used to work at the BBC. I did four different jobs over four years, I think it was, at the BBC. And my last one was a senior producer for BBC Live, which is a platform they built to do all the Olympics coverage in 2012. So to carry the live streams, they couldn't put on the TV, essentially. And my job was to take that and encourage other people to use it. So I suddenly was live blogging The Apprentice, helping Radio 3 do a translation uh, of an opera, all sorts of different things. And BBC Sport wanted to do something for BBC Three around League of Legends in Wembley because this game couldn't be covered before because there was a thing called undue prominence of the BBC. So you can't promote one game because you have to promote all the games. You have to have an editorial reason. And this was at Wembley. So I went along not really knowing, sort of doing a little bit of research before, but mostly I was focused on setting up the website, making sure that we had kind of stuff good to go, just looking at the editorial of how we're presenting things. And then once I got there, I was just meeting all of these fans of this game and the production team as well, and the commentators that we use for our broadcasts that normally do traditional esports broadcasts, if you can say traditional, <laughs> still quite young. Um, and so, I just fell in love with that whole atmosphere and I understood it when I once I saw it in that space once I saw how much it meant to people it's kind of contagious it was so emotional and I just learned how much people have given up for this but also how much they gained as well and I just went oh I'd like to be part of that please but yeah I, I tried to sort of get some ideas off the ground couldn't make those work so then I looked at Twitch because that's where everyone was watching esports and there happened to be a producing job so I jumped ship. It took me seven months, but I jumped ship. Yeah, I think that can quite often happen in like bigger corporates, can't it? Where it's like a company gets so big where it becomes harder for them to change and it's harder for you to make an impact on it. I think that's why we always advocate for people having something of their own outside of if they're working for one of these big companies or trying to find a smaller company to work for where you can actually make a difference. Because if your intention is to make a difference in the world in some way, 
sometimes in those positions you can get a bit trapped and you can't really achieve what you want to achieve so yeah it's always worth kind of looking for spaces where actually you can make an impact and I th- like you would hope going forward with talent leaving places that they can't make a change in that those bigger places are then going to adjust in some way to allow those people to come back it was a funny place to work because I when I left my team got me a necklace that said ask Frankie on it because i met so many different departments across the BBC and I've worked across all the channels, radio stations. I I basically met lots of people and, and used those connections as I went from job to job. And I just couldn't do anything more. I tried really hard to make things better. And the problem was that I was often doing more than I should have like it's not always about what you gain from something, but I didn't like the culture that I was seeing form. I didn't think that we were serving the audience, all of the audience. I felt like we were serving quite a niche audience. Uh, essentially, BBC Three mm. turned into Vice. And now it's changed again. Um, and I think it's broadened its scope a bit. But there are certain things that were happening before I left that made it easier for me to leave. I felt like even though I was someone people came to when they needed something, I still didn't have a voice to to kind of influence things to make them better. I could make people's lives easier, but I couldn't do, uh, I, I couldn't sort of move things forward. Like I pitched things and I would, one time I pitched an idea for this interactive platform and was successful, won the money, but didn't have a department to make it with. Oh, no. <laughs> so it just went. Another time in my lunch breaks, I made an interactive video around, uh, like well, multiple videos in one uh, around a show called uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I made it with the uh, BBC Academy who are absolutely fantastic. And I was working, leading a team that made websites for indies. Uh, and when I came in, it was basically upload some videos each week and make sure the listings are right. And I said, well, we've got really, really clever, brilliant people here. Can we not actually make something of these websites? Look at the stats, which websites are going to do well? Okay, right. Well, why don't we do an interview? Why don't we a bit of resource because we have it into making those into proper websites uh just just things like that um i i mean i know i'm probably not sounding making much sense i bounce from one thing to the other because i'm like oh we did this interactive video and oh and then i did websites and things like that i was i i sound like i'm incredibly scatty but i think i've done so many things now that it's quite hard to like put it all like it's really weird looking back and being like oh I did this thing and this thing and this thing so yeah but do you find that all of the individual little things you did have accumulated into your pool of knowledge that now helps you with anything you find going forward what I used to do when 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 I was younger when I was starting out so I started like APing assistant producing on digital stuff back when I was still at uni when I was 19 20 years old and every time I went to a different job I would learn something new. So when I worked at a radio station, it was learning Myriad, which is a you know play out system for radio, basically. Uh, I went to uh, Channel 4 and I learned much more about, and it was my second time back there, I'd interned there as well, but I learned more about making videos and doing things like paper edits. Then I went to Sky and I overexposed a horse <laughs> making a video, it was a white <laughs> horse. Um, and so after that, I learned how to probably use a camera and and video editing and things like that so everywhere I've gone I've kind of learned things and then because I learned them because other people taught me them because when I was back in Birmingham as a student I got seen by uh, people in the creative industry and they saw that I was enthusiastic and popping up everywhere so they gave me opportunities and and these people gave me knowledge so it's very important for me as I move forward in jobs that I then 
see if people also want that. If they want, for example, when I was producing websites, if they want to do something creative, but their job isn't, how do we make it creative? How do we get them actually out there learning interview skills, uh, writing? I can sub edit what they do. I can work with them, give them feedback on all that kind of stuff. So that's like really important. And sometimes it also helps because one time when I was doing uh, something for a BBC comedy, new comedy awards, and I didn't have anyone to film with because I had no budget, I could write to all the departments that we were uh, in the local regional departments of the cities we were visiting and say, hey, do you want to learn some camera skills? Why not spend a day filming on the new comedy? <laughs> I'll show you what you need to do. And then we'll film something in the evening. Like literally, literally, that's how I got around things was just going, if you're happy to help me out, I'm going to teach you something in return. So I did a lot of skills exchange in the past. And now I'm a host. It's slightly different because... It's much more solitary in a way, even though you're working from team to team. So now what I do is I kind of look out and if there are any new uh, talent I see on the scene, the broadcast talent, uh, if I see a showreel, for example, if they talk about needing to make one and all that kind of stuff, I'll get in touch with them and be like, hey, do you want some feedback? Or do you want to like, I'm not going to force it on you. I'm going to ask if you want it. If you don't want it, that's fine. I'll walk away. But um, but if I can help you, because I used to be a producer and I know what I like to see in a showreel, I'll help you out. So for me, it's like there's a lot of pay it forward because I think that's really important because people did that for me. So I think that's something that I've carried through with every job that I've done. And that's really, really important to me because you can't make things better unless you like reach out to people. Yeah, I think we hear a lot of businesses talking about like being nimble. And basically what that means is like making quick decisions. And I think when you're in a company that's as big as the BBC, like those decisions have to go. And because there's brands that me and Adam work with where they can't just make these quick quick decisions because they have to go up the chain. And, and I guess it's very easy to slot people um, when they are, when they're in an organization. And because, because you said you'd love to work with the BBC again, like, and I can totally see that happening because it's almost like when you're within the system, you're slotted as this is who you are and this is what you do. But as soon as you leave and spread your wings and actually create something successful, then you can kind of, I suppose it's almost like proving people wrong, isn't it? But you have to almost like leave the place where for a lot of people would feel safe. And it's actually, once you're out of that safety, you can actually show the real skills that you have and then maybe come back and do the thing that you were trying to do when you were there in the first place. I think one of the hardest things for me in my job is to kind of leave so that I have quite traditional, I guess, pedestals things on pedestals and the bbc is one of them and so and broadcast is one of them even though the medium i work in is very much not about uh, regular tv programming mm. it's it's live the first twitter used to be a second screen you know it, back in 2011 2012 and we we're watching tv programs and tweeting about them and and reacting together it's a very different landscape now anyway because of on demand but but with uh, the stuff that I do it's normally broadcast on Twitch or maybe even YouTube and there is a chat and everyone's reacting in the same space at the same time so it actually has something quite powerful the platform that I'm working with at the moment because TV now has that issue of oh well well people aren't all here at the same place creating the reaction that they used to but Twitch is doing that now Twitch has taken over that so I still want to be with traditional broadcasters and I sometimes forget that actually no I'm part of the I'm part of the thing that's taken over from that like I shouldn't be trying yeah, to go backwards yeah. but I can't help myself but also I just want to be able to work more in the UK and I thought like that's probably one of the self like the reasons why as well we do put these big old kind of like traditional brands on a pedestal like I always think of like brands like Forbes and 
kind of entrepreneur magazine and these things that have been going for years where everyone's like oh i just really want to be in forbes and it's like well, but why and it's like it's just for that little kind of like ego tick of like oh yeah i can tell myself that i've achieved that because when i was growing up that was the pinnacle but i think it is so worth reminding ourselves that actually in the future they're probably not going to be the biggest things anymore and things like twitch and other online platforms are going to give you a much bigger reach than the something like the bbc which is basically just a british thing obviously they sell things to other countries but if you want to be seen by the most people actually that will be online these days because that's where the audience is going to be and also with something like the bbc you're hitting more of a generic kind of demographic with the people that are watching it but with online platforms like with social media and these different kind of like live streaming platforms you can target people so specifically who are actually interested in your content. They'll like, they'll like live and die by it. They'll absolutely love it. Well, instead of just being like something they just flick on the TV, it's on, but they won't really have that much of a connection to it. How much of a, how do you kind of see that landscape changing going forward from like your experience over the past few years? I think that more and more people are going to start to gravitate towards live streaming platforms. I think we've seen in the last year, such an avalanche of interest apparently there's about nine and a half million people who have streamed on twitch now uh unique people that sounds really weird as in like unique viewers i'm now going to marketing speak and getting it wrong <laughs> <laughs> um, but that i think there was about three million before or maybe three and a half million so it's almost it's it's more than doubled shall we say it's not quite trouble but it's more than doubled <laughs> in the last year as more and more people kind of get onto that bandwagon and it's almost I feel like taken over from YouTube as the aspirational thing that young people want to do but yeah. we also have a very wide variety of streamers on Twitch I mean there's a guy in Germany who must be 60 odd who plays flutes with his nose or plays recorders with his nose <laughs> like there's such a Brilliant. wide range of of people on Twitch and I think that we're all gonna gonna we're going to see traditional broadcasters start to move their programming to Twitch because suddenly it's a way to have appointment to view broadcasting again. So obviously we see that with esports because it's really not the same watching something back as a as a VOD. You need to be there live with the Twitch chat live yeah. feeling and sharing those emotions because esports is a very emotional broadcast product and uh, industry. And that's going to be one of the really exciting things is back when you were, I suppose this is the same for sports on TV actually as well, because you were always going to get the result. You're rarely going to watch football back without spoilers, for example. So I think- Yeah, it's never the same. Even yeah. if you haven't had the spoilers, you don't have the same excitement knowing that it happened in the past. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing with Twitch. It's everything on Twitch is much more exciting when it's live. And as a viewer, even with esports, you kind of feel like you can influence the outcome in some way, I think. More so, yeah. obviously, if you're watching a, a Twitch streamer, you've got this person at your fingertips you can literally speak to. And and sometimes that can be not a dangerous thing, that's too strong a word, but um, but can be a disadvantage for the person on screen because you're going to have good people who want to influence uh, everyone around them and, and you on screen positively, and you're going to have people who feel like the only way to get attention is to, to be negative. So it... It does present its own issues because you are suddenly very available to other people. And I stream when I'm not doing esports broadcasts, so I'm can be on camera seven days a week. <laughs> I, so you have to, if you are someone who streams on Twitch, you have to be very careful about 
how much you give of yourself to the audience and because not all the audience are going to understand what the relationship is like they're not gonna they they might Mm -hmm. feel like you are friends with them and that they know you because they've heard so much about your life because they're watching it but you don't know the same back about them and i don't think all streamers uh, or viewers bear that in mind and that's not something you have with television but i i don't think television is going to die anytime soon i just think that when it comes to to gaming and esports when broadcasters try to get esports onto their platforms in the sense of taking feeds acquisitioning feeds that already exist on twitch that's there's no point in that the only reason to watch esports on tv is because you don't get the ads if it's on the bbc or on bbc iplay that's the only reason you have because you lose the social experience and sports is a social experience so so yeah that's kind of my roundabout way of, of saying for our generation and younger everything's digital and so for the older platforms for traditional broadcasting the way that they can still be a part of that is to not try to be it but to to work out ways to be around it if that makes sense mm. yeah 100 percent. yeah it's really interesting what you're saying back a minute ago about how it's how it's grown from like three to basically nine million in the past like year and i suppose so much of that will be due to like the, the pandemic and people being at home more and feeling like that's the only way they have to connect to an audience. And I know like back in like say March, 2020, there was this huge craze for just Instagram, everyone going live all the time because they were like, oh, this is the new thing to do. This is how I'm going to become successful. And I think the challenge everyone has to overcome there is just the confidence of actually picking the phone up and looking into it and talking. Because I think that's something that people really struggle with, especially at the start. And it does take time to build up that confidence to just for it to feel normal. It's like we've been doing this show for two years now and it's like now we're at a stage where I don't care if the camera's on, like it just feels normal now. It doesn't feel weird. But definitely when we first started, even when we started with just audio, that felt so weird. Like just listening back to your voice when you're going through the edit or just like thinking like, oh, well, what are people thinking about me on the other side of this screen? It's such a hard thing to overcome. Like what advice would you give to anyone who wants to start live streaming or getting their face out there to help build that confidence? I would say the first thing is don't look at the view account and don't be upset if people aren't talking in Twitch chat because if people want to talk, they're going to talk. I think that's one of the things that holds people back when they start because they're going, oh, I'm not streaming to anyone or, oh, there's two people here, but they're not talking to me. And there is this expectation from streamers that the audience should be talking back as much as they're talking sometimes. And that's going to make you not enjoy it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you need to enjoy it because that's what people are coming to see. They don't want to watch someone who isn't enjoying themselves because what are they going to get out of that? So you have to do something you enjoy. And so finding a game that you like, finding that balance further down the line, if you become successful, it can be difficult because if you we're not a variety streamer, are you playing loads of different games in the first place? you will have an audience that wants to see you play something in particular. So when I started out, I I played Uncharted 4 on my PlayStation, literally streamed from my PlayStation. Then I went to Fallout and I kind of built up a small community there because I was playing it for a few months. And then I went to Overwatch and I built a PC because I enjoyed playing it so much at home. And so I had an audience who expected me to be playing Overwatch and I still wasn't on a huge amount of viewers. I was kind of on 50 to 100 um, and 
that was the expectation. But I'd always always played other games. So again, could kind of get away with playing different things. And then I started hosting in Counter-Strike. And then everyone expected me to be playing Counter-Strike all the time. And if I'm not playing Counter-Strike, then I'll have less viewers. But sometimes you can get quite stressed playing the same game or streaming the same game, especially if you're not having a good day on it. And so it can become more difficult. So I think that's something that people should bear in mind is, is when you first start out and you don't have that pressure or audience expectations, play what you want and try and enjoy it. So those, those are kind of the two main things. And the third thing is uh, set your boundaries. So when you do have an audience and you are interacting with people, decide where you want to interact with them and also how. So for example, if you become popular and you've got lots of people trying to message you on Discord, for example, I don't allow direct messages from people on my social platforms or at least unfiltered ones, unless they're people I know or people I follow back. I, I have quite clear lines on that. I have a Discord server where I talk to the community that I stream for and they're amazing. I, I think they're brilliant. Sometimes they use the server to have their own games because they've met each other on my in my chat and they really like each other. So it's really nice. We've got a community that exists outside of when I'm streaming, which is awesome. So people met each other because of me, but they didn't, they're not talking to each other like just when I'm there, they have their own thing going on. I think that's awesome. Um, but when you're in on Twitch, you are responsible for the tone in your Twitch chat and the tone of your community. So I feel very grateful that I had great people who came to my channel in the first place and they have fostered that community that wants to actually be around each other when the Twitch channel is not live. Uh, and when people come to my Twitch channel and perhaps they're a bit rude or they don't know the rules or maybe they're talking about the way I look in quite a suggestive way and things like that. I have people in my Twitch channel, I have some mods, but also a community that knows that I don't like that. So they are very, very good at curating it for me uh, and kind of, and correcting that behavior. So I don't always have to do it, which is really nice, but though I set the rules there as well. So there are some streams that probably don't have a strict rules, but I am strict because I don't want to have a toxic environment around the time I stream. Doesn't mean I don't swear. I've got an adult warning on my channel because I play Counter-Strike, I shoot people in, I try to shoot people in the head. Often I miss, uh, but I, I swear a lot as well. So it's, you know, I'm not broadcasting to children, but I, at least in my mind, I'm not broadcasting to children. But uh, but also I, I still ha have like a respectful relationship with my, my chat, basically. Yeah, I mean, I know we've got a lot of listeners who'll be listening to this who are not not video game players or or are not interested in becoming mm -hmm. um, video game players. But I do think that everything you were talking about there is kind of universal. It's it's foster the people that are around you that are the people that you that you want around you, care for them, and then in return they will care for you and put out the. I suppose it's content would be the easiest word to use. Put out make like play the games you want to play paint the paintings you want to paint, create the the work that you want to create, put that out into the world and and build around it the people who are interested in seeing that. And every now and then someone's going to pop in because they've heard that there's a buzz about whatever's going on and they haven't been with you for long, so they don't understand what you're about and they're going to react to you in the wrong way. Um, and then if you've been fostering those people around you, they're going to course correct. I think that's what we do as mammals. We we sort of we have this behavior of where like if I if I all of a sudden walk down the street like wearing no clothes then everyone like would point and laugh. It's weird. It's this is 
And that's not what we do. We all like, we all have to fit into a certain degree. But yeah, I think it's just get those people around you and, and, like yeah, looking after them is is so important because then they will, like you you then don't need to say anything. It's so beautiful if a if a troll like jumps into your stream where you can just be like, well, I don't need to deal with you because I know the guys have got my back and they're just going to shut you down without me even having to worry about it. Yeah, that happens sometimes. I respond, <laughs> and it's it's it drains your energy. <laughs> so I need to be better yeah. at, at not doing that. I think one thing you said earlier I found really interesting that was a real kind of correlation between things that I've seen on like other social media platforms is how you kind of get known for that one game or that one thing that you do. And then when you change, there's like going to be a drop off in audience or people who actually aren't interested in the new thing that you're doing. How important is it to just actually follow the stuff that you want to do compared to following what the audience wants? I don't let anyone choose apart from myself uh, and obviously the people who are choosing to work with me I, I don't let other people really choose what I do games wise except on Twitch where there is an expectation that I'll play Counter-Strike and I enjoy it as well and I have some subscribers and they are mostly Counter-Strike players so on Wednesdays when I can stream I'll do viewer games and we'll, we'll play Counter-Strike we'll jump on a server so there's no rank there's no pressure because in, in certain games you will play competitively and you'll be given a rank and it encourages gamification. It, it, well, it is a game. It's not gamification because it is a game. It encourages people to keep playing <laughs> to, to get better, right? That you get that satisfaction or you get incredibly disappointed i do that but i also play with my viewers as well so there is an expectation that i'm going to do that and i'm happy with that because there are people who essentially fund me streaming who pay for the microphone and the camera that i'm on and all that kind of stuff so that's fine i don't make an income from twitch but i can reinvest the money into the stream um when it comes to anything else yeah it's 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 my call basically so when um it became time to go freelance um how was that decision and was it was it kind of a no-brainer or was it a really scary sort of leap so the reason i became a full-time host is because twitch cut a load of jobs one day and most of them were in the us but little old me in europe was out so i think in some ways that was a case of someone not knowing what i did because to be fair, I didn't have as much to do in terms of live events all the year, which my job kind of centered around producing shows at events. I was producing a film, but also I did a lot of work with UK partners and I did a lot of work with charities because we didn't have anyone who did that in Europe. So I kind of took that role on. So I did a lot of different things. Um, but I was happy and I was started hosting on the side, but I had this security net and I didn't know if I could be successful as host. And then suddenly one day I'm like, have a random meeting with HR and I'm handed some papers and it's like, oh, okay, right. Well, I'm just going to go off and host the show I do on Thursday nights and then send <laughs> some emails. Oh God. Um, and so the most upsetting thing about that was that I didn't get to, I didn't have the control in that situation and lots of people were out of the office and I had to kind of leave straight away, which is one of those things when, when you know, when your, your job, is cut. I don't want to say because I wasn't fired. So I'm very strict on that language as well. If my job was terminated, my job was cut, my job was fired. Uh, was I fired? I wasn't. And that's fine. I have a really good relationship with Twitch, um, with the people who work there and with the company in general. I'm very Twitch positive. But um, but at the time, obviously, it was, it was tough because I really enjoyed that environment. I really enjoyed working there. 
So I sent some emails, had some meetings with some companies and things. And then I had a call with someone I used to work with at Twitch because there was an opportunity maybe for me to move into a different department. So I had a call with him about the opportunity and I said, I don't have the degree that this job is looking for. And he was like, well, you have all the other stuff so we can teach you that kind of stuff that you need to know if you want to apply for it. And I said, well, I've had calls with these guys, these guys. I was also thinking maybe about trying the host because I've got a couple of things coming up. Um, and he just literally said to me, oh yeah, you should do that. You'd be really good at that. You'll make money doing that. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. I'll, I guess I'll try. And so, yeah, um, and I, yeah, I'd just been booked for a couple of jobs because I, I sent some emails to people, some contacts that I had from when I was producing in, in the gaming industry at Twitch. Um, and yeah, it just kind of went from there. And my, I also was very fortunate. I had savings. I had a partner who owned his flat and was like, if you can't afford to pay me, more, uh, pay me rent for a month or two, then that's okay. And back in the day, I could not have done that. So everything aligned at the right time and I just sold my flat, so hence the savings. So yeah, I just decided to give myself a few months. There was an event that I used to, I produced a show at uh, for the past couple of years for Twitch uh, called Gamescom. Gave myself until the August bank holiday weekend to prove whether I could do this as a job, whether I could get enough income and whether I could be successful at it. So I had this like window and I, yeah, I basically went to, Stockholm in May to do a show, then flew home, so straight to Poland. Um, and then I went to uh, Austin and then I went to LA. And then essentially I kind of started to work nonstop. And 2019 kind of was an even bigger jump in terms of the amount of work and things like that. Uh, so 2019, I spent seven months accumulatively away from home. Um, probably did nearly 30 events and it it kind of didn't stop until COVID made it stop and yet still during COVID I've been broadcasting from home and so there's been some periods of downtime but to be honest it, it hasn't really stopped <laughs> it's been mad I'm very lucky I'm very very lucky that I had the foundation to be able to do it because not everyone does so I didn't start hosting full-time until I was 29 so that's why 30 under 30 lists are bullshit and they're a waste of time. <laughs> 100%. And they really make people feel bad about themselves because they made me feel bad about myself. I felt bad about myself all the time whenever I saw those things because I was like, I'm good at really? stuff, but I can't get to this point, blah, 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 blah. They are, yeah, not, no offense to people who are on those lists because they're obviously great people and they deserve to be seen. But they make other people feel not seen. And yeah, I, have, I do have an issue with that. You're listening to Creative Rebels, the podcast for creatives. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider subscribing and sharing this podcast in any way that you can. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think a lot of people listening to this show will be 25 plus and they will think that, oh, maybe it's too late to start something now. They'll see like the younger generation coming through being successful in things like TikTok and thinking, oh, I'm too old for that. I'm past the stage where that can become a real like a realization but so i think it's really great to hear whenever well because it happens all the time but i think it's not glamorized as much as when a younger person 
becomes really successful from it. I think you've seen that with kind of like Mark Zuckerberg, where there's been this bit of a change in young people being like this amazing thing that everyone needs to be young and they're the ones who are going to change things. And if you're beyond that age, then it seems a bit impossible. But it's obviously not, is it? It's definitely not impossible. I used to look at presenting and just be like, there's no way I could do this because I'm not the child of someone famous and I'm not a model. So how would I get auditions for anything? How would I even be considered for anything? And I put myself on camera doing things for a long time. Like I, I, <laughs> when I was doing an interactive video series with comedians, I recorded 30 episodes of, it was like Frankie's fringe focus because I was doing it on this platform called Touchcast. They saw I was making stuff and they decided on the name. Never paid me like they said they would, but hey, it was good experience of like talking to people and I worked in comedy and I knew a lot of comedians. So it was something I could do with them. And they were like five minutes and I, because I had a platform, could only have a format that was five minutes long. And I was just bringing up loads of videos and, and, and things like that within the interview. So it was like almost like a, almost like a blog post within an interview where you're obviously clicking on links and there are onward destinations and things like that. So I was always trying to work out what I could do because it was something I, I'd thought about, but I thought I was, I'd never be able to achieve it. Um, and it was only when I had a, like a careers week meeting with someone at the BBC where there was something talking about being on camera and stuff. And so I did these exercises with this uh, woman and at the end of it, she was like, yeah, you can do this. What do you want to talk about though? And I was like, I don't know. You have to know what you, you have to know what you want to talk about to be a presenter. Oh my God. I'd never, I'd never realized that. And then it was when I, after I joined Twitch, I, I didn't join Twitch wanting to be, thinking I was going to become an esports host or thinking I was going to become a presenter in any way. I was there as a producer, but I went to a, a Rocket League, uh, which is a great esport. I went to a, a Rocket League end of season finals in Amsterdam. This was in 2016, Christmas 2016-ish. And I saw a fabulous high school, Kelly Link, who I've worked with when, as uh, from a producing capacity on stage and hosting hosting the show and I was watching and I went oh I'd love to do that I think I could do that I thought about it but I never sort of pursued it again because I was producing and I felt very guilty about doing multiple things but sometimes I had to pop up on stage to cover for presenters because I always had no budget like to, to pay people properly for the long hours that they were doing or to pay enough people to do it so I I went out and do it did it and I didn't have pressure when I was doing that either so I just brought myself to the stage and because I was used to talking on camera to my iPad camera, to my laptop camera when I was a student, all that kind of stuff, it just kind of clicked. Um, so when I had the opportunity to to actually host full time, when I got asked to do a couple of things while I was producing kind of on the side, I was ready and I knew who I was because I was old enough to know who I was. I knew what I wanted to talk about and I'd seen other people do it really well and I knew what made me different from them. So I could learn from watching them, but I could also bring myself to it. And I think that's why when I started doing it, it, it was very quick in terms of being booked for things because I didn't sound like anyone else. Um, and, and that was, I guess, I don't know if refreshing is the word, but it was interesting to people, I think. How would you answer that question now? What, what it is that you want to talk about? I meet these 16-year-old kids who then, you know, are lifting trophies within a year or maybe maybe a little bit later. I see them go from never being interviewed before to doing their first 
interview with me, for example, which is it's such a privilege of my job to seeing them maybe on stage, either with myself or someone else, like having lifted the trophy, having won, for some people, I like changing some of money, but they're not thinking about the money. They're mm. thinking about the fact that they did the thing, they won. Like they've watched other people doing this because a lot of these young players, then they've seen their heroes do the same thing and now they're doing it, but on bigger stages because esports is getting bigger and bigger. And that for me is just such a, amazing thing and I, I love that with this job I had this when I first joined Twitch as well I was in a job where I wasn't thinking about where I needed to go to next or what I wanted to go to next sure I think about jobs that I'd like to do in terms of hosting but I'm not thinking oh I want to be doing a different job to the one I'm doing uh, mm -hmm. I sort of move around stage interviewing and desk hosting but I'm very happy to have the work. The only thing I want is, <laughs> to be honest, is like a commitment of a contract and knowing when I'm going to be working further in advance so I can have a holiday with my poor fiance. <laughs> the, hard, the hard thing is, I suppose that I have is the things that I want to do or the stories I want to tell outside of esports broadcasting. I have that problem where it's a bit like, I can go back to the BBC and just be like, hey guys, so, um, I, I, I do stuff now like on camera and I, I do a different job and I'd love to do it for you. My problem is I think I don't have the platform to, to I guess, use my voice in the way that I want to use it in, in that sense. So I think that's one of the things that I have to do next. So apart from being happy in my job right now, like that's something I would love to do in the future. So I think it's just about finding the right people to do that with and, and the people who are going to trust me with that. So I think that's, what I have to do next is just to kind of think about that and think about like how how to do it because that's the thing with Twitter. It's, it can be a bit of an echo chamber and then I have uh, the people that are never going to enter into a, a sort of reasonable argument. Like for example, when it comes <laughs> yeah. to the sports thing, oh, well, the audience figures, marketing, money, it's always, it's always about the money. It's always revenue stream. And, and when I sort of try and explain, but things like women's football being shut down or uh, not having the funding for women to to get them to, we're, we're missing the best talent yeah, it's the same yeah. with women in esports we're missing the best talent because they don't necessarily have the same opportunities i don't know what it's like for a young girl who's starting out playing counter-strike for example but when i was 16 and my uh, then boyfriend and his friends were going off and play, having like overnight lamb parties and and all that kind of stuff. It was very like, you're not allowed to come with us. So, and it it was, this is like 2005. So I didn't have kind of the ability to set up lobbies and, and get into it on my own at home kind of thing. It's not like I had mm -hmm. a dad who was playing Counter-Strike who was gonna teach me and all that kind of stuff. So I didn't really have access to that world. And the one way to get into that world was barred to me as well so i i now know it's more accessible for for young girls but at the same time the barriers are different because they're playing online against strangers and it's really really hard like i enjoy playing because i can set up a server with people who watch me on twitch for example get better there and then solo queue or, or find people i trust to play with and all that kind of stuff so it's taken me a little while but now i have groups of people that i want to play with but if you're a girl starting out you're already different to most of the people that you're going to be playing with and against. So you are going to feel very, very lonely. 
what would your advice be to a younger person who's in that situation now what would your advice be to a young girl who might maybe want to go into sports or gaming or something that's generally seen as a male dominated area i would say you have to put yourself out there because you need to find the right people to be on that journey with and you're not going to find them unless you put yourself out there so that's the hardest thing is putting yourself out there in the first place and also there'll be some shame around what you want to do because you'll probably feel guilty about playing video games and wanting to do that for a living because there's still a culture that says that that's not productive and so that can be a difficult thing so you need to you need to find your tribe uh, I still feel embarrassed when I was talking about the fact that I'm on camera because of the way what it says about me kind of thing so I know what that can be like to be embarrassed about all those kinds of things um and then when people are saying that you can't do something then you have to question their motives and I know that's really difficult because you want to trust people and you want to see the best in people but unfortunately you have to ask yourself why they're trying to hold you back or why they don't want you there so there is an emotional intelligence thing there. You have to craft that and you have to hold on to it. And sometimes that can be really hard because you find yourself rationalizing other people's behavior. Oh, the reason that they're saying this about me is because they're insecure and this, that and the other and feeling sorry for them. But actually the best piece of advice I think I was ever given, and this is gonna be a surprise to anyone who does know me because I've got a reputation as being quite an optimistic person and happy and all that kind of stuff, is if someone is not nice to you, you don't have to be nice back to them. As girls, we're told we have to be nice all the time and it's exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. I have anxiety over all the things I do. I often leave conversations being like, I spoke too much about myself. I did that, this, that, and the other. Um, because we are taught that we need to be pleasant and nice and not impose ourselves and all that kind of thing. And actually you have to put that to one side. Again, something I'm still working with and do the thing that you want to do because you've got one life. So you're not going to be able to do the thing you want to do if you if you let other people stop you from doing it. So that's that's the really key thing. Think about why people are acting the way they are. And if you can rationalize that it's not your fault, then you're not doing something wrong and you should keep doing it. And how do you bring around your negative self-talk into something that's a bit more positive? Just trying to take stock of the things I've, I'm doing at the moment, I have to remind myself that I'm, I'm doing a job I really love. And if I can't do it anymore, if I'm doing less work, then it's actually okay. Like I'm fairly secure. I've worked so solidly and so hard for so long that if I don't work for a little bit, then it's okay. Because my life, my problem is my life revolves around work. It's such a huge part of my identity. Um, and I think that's especially grown with this job because it's not a nine to five job and you feel guilty if you turn something down because if you turn something down, someone else does the job really well, then you might not get hired again because it's great for that person and you, you can be happy for them. But I've learned that you're also allowed to be heartbroken for yourself sometimes. Uh, so making sure I don't feel guilty and kind of take care of myself in that sense as well is really I think, important i think that's really important because it's like when you're you almost feel so lucky to be in that position at times that you don't want that ever to end so you just keep saying yes to things but i think a lot of like things that we've learned over the years is just the fact that you don't have to say yes to everything other things will come just because you turn one thing down it doesn't mean that your career's over 
because more will come because you'll keep creating opportunities because you'll the amount of people you've met so far along the way more things are going to come from that but i think there's definitely that balance of making sure you don't take on so much that it kind of takes over your life and you actually get time to reflect on what you've done because it's really easy to just kind of head down keep working keep working keep working and then years down the line you find yourself in a position where you're like am i actually where i wanted to be or did i just keep going so fast and keep my head down that i wasn't really looking where i was going i didn't know where the destination was so i think it is quite important to every now and again stop take a little bit of a break and then reflect on exactly where you are because then you can be like, am I heading in the direction I actually want to be going in? Are the last five or six jobs I took on heading me in the direction that we want to go? Like we talk quite often on the show about like, does it make the boat go faster? Like, is it heading me in a direction that I want to be going? Or is it just keeping me afloat? Or is it taking me in a direction that is a completely different way that I want to be going? So yeah, I think it, 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 there is definitely that balance. I know it is really hard to achieve of saying yes and saying no and knowing what to take on and but also kind of like stepping back when things do come in and be like, is this going to take me in the right direction or is it just going to kind of facilitate things for the meantime? Mm. I've definitely got better at that in the last year or so, I think, of saying no to things. It was really hard to before. I had an agency in the past where it was 2018 and my diary was so stacked. I think it was, maybe it was 2019. I can't remember. It kind of all blurs into one, but... I just remember like I was exhausted and my agent was like, uh, so-and-so would like you to do this. And I was like, oh, I, I, I can't do that weekend. And he was like, but why? Cause your diary is free. And I was just, I was like, I'm, I'm working nonstop. Like I, I, I really, really need to like to stop for, for a week or so. Cause I'm like, I'm gonna crash. And he just didn't understand it. And uh, I I definitely decided way too late to kind of actually go without an agency for a little bit and just see how I found it and things like that. And I only resigned with my new agency because um, someone who is also talent, who I've worked with many times and is a friend, is now working for them and representing their talent in Europe. And I feel comfortable and I, I feel happy saying no and discussing things with them. And it's it feels better but I don't feel guilty for saying no to things and like I feel like they've got my back in situations not that my old agent didn't but I just I think it was really good for me to take a few months out of that relationship and being conscious that other people are deter like other people are reliant on you to be working and to be doing the work and it was really good to almost kind of just be working for myself for a bit and just to sort yeah. of feel that out and see if I could do it. And I was perfectly capable of doing it, but I'm terrible at doing brand deals. So I need an agency. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do money conversations. I can't, oh God, I don't want to sell myself based on followers, but it's very useful to be able to do because it means I can say no to certain jobs as well. So, you know, it's a balance. Mm -hmm. What would your advice be to anyone who's thinking about getting an agent? Like how, what, what makes a good agent and what kind of person should have an agent compared to someone who should just be doing it themselves? I think there's a misconception with agents that they're going to get you work and you need one to work. That's so not the case. You need to be able to get your own work. You need to be doing that in order to prove that you should have an agent anyway. So always ask yourself why you need an agent. 
because it's really not hard to invoice. Like you get an app yeah. in your invoice. And honestly, I prefer doing it myself. I don't like not invoicing because then I don't have a record of what I need to chase and what's coming in and when and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I actually really like handling that side of things. But I've passed it over to my new agency because you know what? It's also a bit easier because they can keep track as well. And sometimes when you're hitting the road and you're going to loads of things, you do need someone else to kind of take care of that for you. So the reasons to have an agent in my mind are if they know more about industry rates and things like that than you do, they can be the bad guys. I don't have to potentially have a difficult conversation with an employer if something isn't right or I don't have the information I need, I can go to my agency. I tend to still do it myself because a lot of my clients I've been working with for a couple of years. So I feel weird asking my agency to do it for me. And also, yeah, just, again, I used to be a producer. Like it feels weird to have a middleman. Um, But if I wanted them to, they would do that for me. Also, I think having someone who can organize the conversations around future work while you're working because it can be really really hard to keep on top uh, on top of things they can take meetings for me they can find out more info about jobs they know the questions to ask I don't need to necessarily do that they have certain information for me on file around like flights and things like that so that's super super handy so it's almost like having a blooming PA at some sometimes because they're they're really sorting my life out for me when I'm unable to so yeah I really appreciate having them but that's the thing you need to ask yourself if that's something you need because if it's not what you need then you don't need an agent there are places i guess that probably treat people more seriously if they have agents like i think it's probably more in like traditional broadcasting where an agent would be expected if you're hosting a, a big show or something like that but at the end of the day like to get started that's that's not what you need what you need to be doing if you want to be in a job similar to mine is you literally need to be doing the thing putting yourself on camera if you want to be commentating right well find something to commentate even if you that requires you to download a vod of a match and then strip out the the sound and like commentate it yourself which would be kind of odd because you wouldn't have the game sounds but or set up a tournament yourself and then commentate it you literally just need to do it like when i watch you host you make it look so easy um and i think that's <laughs> like having that practice is is really recommended because i'm guessing that there's a ton of research that goes into what you what you do and learning all of the stories behind the different teams and everything because because you have everything front of mind so that you can you can bring bits in um and i think that's a real skill thank you yeah the research i used to do all the research for my hosts when i worked at twitch so when i had like 30 different games on stage in a day like these 15 minute developer interviews then I'm out there watching the YouTube links, getting the information on the guests, getting information on the game, like getting talking suggested talking points. I'd never be like, right, I'm writing questions for you. I'd always be like to my host, like right where you want to go with it, but here's information for you. Because that's really important to me. I don't want to put my voice into someone else's mouth. I'm good at writing in other people's voices for them. Like I'm good at writing scripts and things, but that wasn't that for me, if you're doing a live broadcast and you don't have an auto queue and things like that, then you need people who are going to be self-sufficient in that case. And also my style of interviewing is very much based on active listening and reacting rather than having a, mm. a proposed list of questions I'm just going to stick to the entire time. So it's useful to yeah. have that list of kind of thread of where I want to go, If I, especially if I'm capturing an interview and I need to get something specific for the benefit of the broadcast. So... 
that's important. But if I've got that information in my head, then I can be thrown out there and I've got something to work with or I'm in an interview and they mention something and I can then jump on top of that and be like, oh, okay, so that's interesting because a couple of years ago, this, that and the other and all that kind of stuff. So being researched is really important to me because that gives you confidence. You can be confident on camera when when you know what's going on. It's terrifying to me working a broadcast where I don't know what's going on. It makes me feel really anxious because at the end of the day, I'm the one that's gonna go out on camera and if it goes wrong, it's on me. And all people who potentially might hire me in the future are gonna see that. And clips last on the internet. <laughs> you know, it's that it's quite scary. Uh, the idea of something not, not going the way uh, that you, you hoped it would. So that's really, really important. I mean, when I started out, I was very good at doing, I don't, just not moments that were disruptive to the broadcast, but I think disruptive slightly to the culture, to the expectation of what was gonna happen. And so I was good at making clippable moments when I started out and now I'm a lot more, not safe, but I'm probably a little bit less rough around the edges in the way that I approach things on a show. <laughs> Um, so you know how the BBC um, didn't believe that you could have a podcast. Mm. You've got a bloody podcast, haven't you? <laughs> I do. I've got I've got my own one, and I got one with Red Bull, which I'm so excited about. Tell us about them. Okay, so I had a podcast called My Life in Pixels. I kind of put it on hiatus for a bit because. I like doing that podcast in person, but also because I wanted to focus on the one for Red Bull because I've never had someone ask me to do a podcast before. So I was very excited about it because I love podcasts. Uh, that sounds so basic, but it's true. I'm I'm quite obsessed. Uh, so yeah, th- basically Red Bull Save Your Game is where I take a guest from the gaming industry, but might not be. Hopefully we're going to talk to some people who are, I don't know if the closet gamers is the right word, but not necessarily working in it as their job. And we talk to them about various games from their lives that have influenced them, that have had a positive impact on their lives. And at the end of it, we ask them to choose the game that they couldn't be without, the the one game that they would save, so to speak, clues in the title. But for me, the podcast, it's not just really about the games themselves, it's about the person and what those games say about them and what stage of their life they were in when they were playing them as well, because mm. I think that's really important Like for me. I completed Monkey Island 3 like three times on the Pentium 2 processor computer. It's a Packard Bell back in like Great the game. late 90s. And that was because I lived in the countryside miles away from my school. And, and um, well, if you, that's a primary school. It was about seven miles away. But I didn't live in the same like town as, as the people I went to school with and all that kind of stuff. And I was bullied quite badly and, and things. So I used to play this game over and over and over again. And it was one of the only things I had. And that was a big part of my life was having my time on the computer and, and not being on my own because yeah. I was in this world. And I think knowing that about myself and, and how important certain games have been to me, it's really, really interesting to see how they've affected other people, like whether it's in the same way or differently. Yeah, I mean... For Adam and me, we've both been really, really affected by video games in our lives. And if if I if I crack on Super Mario World, it's a comfort blanket. Mm. It's it takes you back, and and it's so like I don't know. There's not even much of a challenge to it anymore. Like I'm so good at it, but it's just there's something so beautiful about it, and the artwork and the colors and everything. It just it just takes me to that place. It's pure nostalgia. It's mm. pure nostalgia, yeah. and I think 
I, I suppose it's the way the brain works that we have those those patterns that are laid down, and especially ones that are laid down when we're younger. And it just they just start firing again when you get into that muscle memory and you and you know all the secrets and you and you take the secret paths and all of that sort of stuff. It's yeah, it can be really really magical. Yeah, and so like there's such positive memories as well. Like as you were saying that, and you said like the secret paths. I was just thinking like there was a little bit in like Goldeneye in the N64 where you could like glitch out of the wall and then like just walk around the outside and shoot people from the outside and they couldn't get you and it was brilliant. But it's funny how like they are such good fond memories of just like playing a game i think like, i always like the social like i i love like the lucas art games like um monkey island and things like that that were just like pure adventure stories that were like real problem solving things but i also like loved anything that was like a social thing so i like had a well i had a brother he's still alive uh, i've got a brother <laughs> who we used to play things together and i think it was like we used to bond a lot over that and then i didn't play computer games for a long time and then we both started to play destiny probably like three years ago or something which was like an online shooter and like i just became obsessed got completely back into this zone of like being a kid again like literally like, my girlfriend was just like hated it i ended up getting like two tvs for the lounge like one was like the main tv and i had my destiny tv separate to it so i could like play this and my brother had the same at home where he had his tv and then a projector screen above it so his girlfriend could watch the tv and we'd both just be <laughs> playing destiny together and then someone will walk in and i'd be like shoot the witches shoot the witches and they just look at me like what the hell is he talking about but yeah it's like there's so much like community and like nostalgia and like niceness that's built into computer games and the community that that creates that i think yeah that's something really special so i completely understand why those stories that you get from people are just so passionate because i think it's such an important part of so many people's lives because so much of growing up i suppose for especially our generation is built around games i suppose like if you went back 50 years it wouldn't be quite the same because playing a game together with someone would be very different not be, yeah yeah Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, yeah, when you can experience something and solve problems, I always feel like it's when you can solve problems with other people, that's when things really connect well. Like, I feel like I'm just going to, this could become a compute, complete computer game chat now, but like even playing things like Counter-Strike and things like that. And at uni, we used to get all of our computers together and just set up so we'd have like a hundred bots against like the four of us or something. And we'd just be in a room and be like, how long can we survive here? can we survive like an hour or something and it was just and you'd keep trying keep trying you keep failing keep failing but is that coming together working as a team problem solving together which i think was a really nice thing and i think that can be taken into so many aspects of your life if you can come together as a team and solve problems i think that's where like starting businesses working in groups of people can be so nice because you're working together to solve a problem and i think that's where communities really form when you're all in the same alignment like heading in the same direction yeah that's the key thing when it comes to esports is those are that's what the games are about it's about teamwork for the most part if they're a team game and strategy it's not about shooting people in the head even though that's what it looks like on the surface surface it, it brings people so much more counter-strike is widely played in schools in denmark for example because there is an understanding there of that i think it's probably easier because it's a smaller nation and they have incredibly good players but <laughs> that's something i talk about a lot is is it's not about what you think it's about it's not about terrorist counter terrorists it's about teamwork and it's about raw skill and and so much and i feel very rewarded when i've had a good game with with people often they're people i've never met on the internet but 
it just feels so rewarding. I'm learning Dota 2 with a couple of friends who I know from uni and didn't really gain much with them apart from like on the console when we were in halls. Cause I turned up with like a PlayStation and we had just bought and things like that. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really PC game back then. And so now we, we haven't seen each other for a really, really long time because of lockdown of things. Because I said I was learning Dota, did they want to try it? Are you free on this afternoon? And they said, yeah. And now they're playing Dota in their spare time. And then when we can, we'll play it together as well. And it's a really lovely thing because we're all at the same level. They're not sort of from my gaming industry world. They're my mates I've known for over a decade. And it's just a really exciting thing to be doing together. It's like, it's just such a nice thing. Um, so I'm really excited to see where your career goes um you're obviously like one of the best at what you do um but i i really look forward to that sort of evolution where um you start like really really the things that are important to you start coming to the fore and, and you start making a real change in that in that arena so um thank you so much for doing our podcast it's been a joy and uh, could you please let our listeners know where they can find you online thank you oh that's so nice um so on instagram it's instagram.com forward slash get frank games and uh twitter is just frankie ward twitch if you are so inclined it's also twitch.tv forward slash frankie but yeah it'd be cool to hear from people if they enjoyed listening to me rant <laughs> brilliant thank Absolute you so legend. much thank you